one of the things that I think people would find particularly useful, uh, like who listen to this podcast, is you can go on there and you, you can basically tell the map to highlight a certain slope aspect. So you can go on there and you can say, hey, highlight all the south facing slopes and boom, it highlight automatically highlights all the south facing slopes, which, you know, for like bedding purposes and whatnot and, and just sunlight exposure, like that's a really useful tool for whitetail guys. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week I'll be talking with my buddy, Andrew Maxwell, from the Southern Outdoorsman podcast, all about map scouting. Uh, Andrew works with maps daily as part of his career in GIS or or geographic information systems, uh, but he also puts them to use in his hunting endeavors, and, and he shares what methods and, and the technology he uses to be more successful in the field uh, using these maps for scouting. And we also dive into his popular Southern Outdoorsman podcast and, and some of what he's learned from interviewing some of the best deer hunters in the country over the last five or so years. So, man, it's just a, a great episode and, and one sure to get you fired up for the upcoming deer season. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by one of NDA's newest partners, Schrade Knives. Uh, Schrade's been around for over 100 years now. Uh, no doubt you know the name, but they've recently rebranded and they've really stepped up their commitment to providing high quality knives for hunters at all budget levels. Um, I'm going to be packing their new Enraged Knife into the woods this fall that incorporates 420 stainless steel replaceable blades from the makers of Rage Broadheads. So a uh, pretty cool concept. I'm looking forward to putting that to the test this fall. And if you guys want to check out their full line of knives, you can do that at Schrade.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E.com. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that this is the 50th episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. So, you know, we're pretty excited about that. We're halfway to that, that 100 mark. And we've been able to talk to a, a lot of really great guests during that time. We have a lot more great guests lined up for future episodes. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast on Apple Podcast, please take just a minute to drop us a five-star rating. Hey, leave us a written review if you got a little time. Those are greatly appreciated. They help us grow the podcast. And if you do leave us a review, we may read that on a future episode. So we appreciate all the support there. One more thing before we jump on the phone here with Andrew. Uh, we still have the free giveaway going on for that Alps Outdoors Motive Trail Camera Backpack. Yeah, that's a mouthful. But uh, yeah, it's soon going to be time to, to get out all those trail cameras for the upcoming season. And this backpack from Alps will help you keep your cameras and your batteries and your SD cards, all that organized in, in one nice and neat unit there and all you have to do to enter is head over to our website at deerassociation.com slash alps a-l-p-s and enter your information into the giveaway form there and we're going to draw a winner sometime in in mid-june so be sure to go ahead and, and get that done and with that guys we're going to jump on the phone here with andrew maxwell to discuss all things map scouting 
Well, hey, Andrew, before we uh, kind of dive into all things map scouting, can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe what led you down this road to a career in GIS and, and starting the Southern Outdoorsman podcast? Yeah, dude. Uh, first of all, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Um, so, yeah, my name's Andrew Maxwell. Uh, I run the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Been doing that since 2018, um, established like the website and everything in 2017, and then started the podcast in 2018. At the same time I was doing that, I was actually in school at Auburn University, and uh, I was originally going to do a degree in forestry. I wanted to be a forester. And when I was at Auburn, they came out with this new degree called um, – Say, I love the name of this degree because it makes me sound smarter than I really am. But it's called <laughs> Geospatial and Environmental Informatics. And basically what it is, is a degree that takes takes a little bit of forestry. It takes a little bit of ecology, um, like natural resource management, and partners it with data science and GIS more specifically. And I've always been a map guy. I mean, even when I was in high school. I mean, when I, when I very, very first kind of started hunting on my own, I mean, I was, I was a map guy from then on because I'm part of that generation. Like I grew up like right when like Google earth became a thing is, is when I was growing up. So, uh, I remember being like, I don't know, like middle school or elementary school and everyone was like, look at this new thing, Google earth. And we were like learning about <laughs> it in a computer class at school. And so like from a very young age, I've been looking at maps and trying to learn from maps <clears throat> and I've just been fascinated by them because it's like I could go somewhere without going there, you know? And uh, so like the transition was pretty normal, like for me to go from forestry over to that degree. So I ended up getting that degree um, and it, it really brought me like a lot deeper into all things GIS and mapping because like you got your Google Earth and stuff like that, you know, basic satellite imagery, but there's there's a lot more layers underneath that that you can go into with mapping. Like you can look at LIDAR. I mean, obviously you got topography maps. Uh, there's raster data sets, which we'll probably get into a little bit later, like stuff like that. Um, Brian, before we got on here, we were talking about how Onyx has that layer that shows you deciduous versus coniferous trees. Uh, so basically, is it is it pines or is it oaks or or whatever? That's a raster data set. So uh, like stuff like that. I mean, there's there's just like a lot of different data points that you can take and put on a map and show people on a map that are really useful for hunters. And so they just married up super, super well. And I've just been, you know, going down that road ever since pretty much. I mean, I dig deeper into it every year. Yeah, that, well. Man, first off, it, it's crazy to me that you guys have been doing the podcast now for five years already. <laughs> it seems like yeah, it seems like I you know I just uh, started listening to you guys a year or two ago. But yeah, it's it has man, it's been a while. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah, crazy, man, because uh, we we recorded one the other day and it was with these fellows from Arkansas, and uh, and they they hadn't heard about us before or anything, and we were talking to them, and they're like, "How many of these have you done?" And their episode was 480. And I was like, golly, man, I can't believe I've done 480 of these. <laughs> like, that's a lot of time talking into like a microphone, a lot of time interviewing people. And uh, I've enjoyed it, man. I've enjoyed every minute of it. But yeah, it does not feel like it's been five years at all. And, you know, when me and Jacob started it, we we had no intentions of it like being like a like a job or like a legitimate business. Like we really just started it because 
Like we just felt like uh, the kind of hunting that we were doing like was underserved in in like I guess traditional outdoor media. Like there there wasn't anybody talking about hunting WMAs in the southeast at the time. There were there was maybe one or two podcasts, like small podcasts out there, but they were kind of you know straddling the line between public and private, and and they talked a lot of private land stuff and. And then you have like your more established things, like you have like your Primos and your Mossy Oak and everything like that and the content they put out. But still, they were they were still like very private land centric and we were public land guys. And so we're like, you know what, let's just start one. Like, let, let's just do it. And and I remember when we very first started, we were like buying the stuff and we had I, literally no money. Like it, I, we started the podcast with like a $30 like snowball microphone from Amazon. <laughs> and it was hard for me to afford that at the time. You know? oh, yeah. And, uh, and we started it with that. And I remember Jacob saying like, Hey, let's just, let's just like put our heads down and just commit to it and do it. And then let's just look up in five or six years and see where we're at. And now we're th- like, he said that exact thing. And now here we are like five years later and it's just kind of, we're, it's kind of weird. You know, you're looking around and you're like, dang, like we really did this thing. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> We, we put our minds to it and we didn't quit. And, and, uh, I can't believe where it's at today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And man, the, the cool thing about podcasting is, you know, what other way would you get to sit down with, you know, I don't know how many people you've interviewed at this point, but you know, 300, 400 people, you know, excellent hunters or, you know, different, I know you you guys have interviewed some, some different folks, whether it be biologists or, but, you know, to get to sit down and, and pick the brains of, of those type of people, you know, for an hour at a time, it's just uh, it, it's a really cool opportunity. It's what I what I love about it. Um, just yeah. getting to, to learn from from these people who, in, in most cases, have a lot more knowledge on the subject than I do. So it's uh, man, it is a cool thing. Yeah, it, you're exactly right about that. And it's a it's like it really is a privilege, man, like to be able to. Like we've we've uh, gotten to be fr- like good friends with Michael Perry here in Alabama, who is just a, a legend. And like, uh, like I, I really value his friendship because like he's just he's such a good hunter and he's such a good woodsman. And he's and like he really is. I mean, he's like a legendary Alabama sportsman. I mean, uh, and just being able to like know him and and hang out with him and pick his brain. And then of course, there's a bunch of others like that too. Um, we're just really lucky to get to know those guys and, and talk to them and, and interview them and, and also be able to talk to them off of the, off the record. Cause a lot of those guys tell me and Jacob stuff that they don't say on the podcast. <laughs> so we get a little bit of, we get a little bit of extra sauce with it. Um, but there you also, go. I love it too, because, um, of just like the, the podcasting community. I mean, I think that the, the podcasting community in the outdoor space is overwhelmingly good. I don't think there's a lot of like bad actors in it or anything like that. I think that most people who are producing an outdoor podcast are really good folks. And it's, it's led me to meet some really awesome people, yourself included, Brian. I mean, we got to go hunt with you in Georgia this past year and that was just a blast. It was like five days, you know, got, got a house together and stayed and we were all out hunting this WMA and, you know, stuff like I wouldn't get to do that kind of stuff if I didn't have the podcast. Uh, so like, it's led me to a lot of meet a lot of cool people who who are also like in the media space too. So it's just been, it's been tremendous, man. I I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely, we're going to circle back to talking a little more about the podcast, um, a little later in the episode, but, uh, 
Let, let's first dive into some some map scouting uh, for whitetails and, and and going back to some of your talk about, you know, when Google Earth first came out, I'll, I'll definitely date myself. I remember, you know, my first trip out west to, to Wyoming, I was, you know, calling BLM and U.S. Forest Service offices and ordering paper maps, you know, to, to get those things in and, and pour over them. And, and then, uh, you know, then once you're out there, you're having to drive down the road with this paper map, you know, with the public land marked and the private land and, and having to, you know, count miles from when you pass some kind of landmark to be able to make sure you're on, you know, public land. It was, it was, there was a whole other set of challenges uh, from today's hunters that can just pull up on X and, and know exactly if they're on public land or private land. Uh, yeah, we've, we've definitely come a long way when it comes to, to map scouting and being able to use these these maps and aerial photos and stuff while we're out there in the field. It's crazy. Yeah, man, it, it is. And I remember <laughs> when Onyx uh, first – so Onyx, I remember when they were, they were a thing, but they were just uh, like GPS chips for a GPS unit. And like back then I couldn't afford like a GPS unit. And I really didn't need <laughs> one either. I mean, I was just like, you know, squirrel hunting and deer hunting on like a local WMA. And – and like I, I could find my way around because I mean it, it's so roaded up, like you, it's impossible to get lost out there. But the property lines were always confusing. Like where, how do I find the property lines? Like they have those in Alabama. They, they've got they've gotten a little bit better since back then, but they have like you know their crappy WMA maps. It's like a a generic map of the whole WMA, and you really can't tell any landmarks on it. Uh, but yeah, you're supposed I'm to like carry. Eight. Yeah, yeah, like an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper. You got twenty thousand acres. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to fold yeah. it up and put it in your pocket, and it gets all sweaty and just not good. <laughs> I remember when Onyx came out with their app, and they didn't have Alabama yet. They only had like eleven states or something like that uh, on there, and they were adding states. And I was like, oh man, I can't wait till they add Alabama. <laughs> and then finally, they did one year, and it was just like game changer. It was it was so awesome to have like the property lines like right there on my phone like it made my life a lot easier because i was going to the the state dnr website back then and they have like an interactive map that you can go zoom around and it shows property lines and so i was like printing out you know screenshots of that map and like carrying like that with me into the <laughs> piece of paper and so yeah it, it was it's gotten a lot easier since back then for sure like i can't even imagine like trying to go out west in some places like the one of the places we whitetail hunted in Wyoming a couple of years back. I can't even imagine trying to go to that place without like Onyx. It, it would make it significantly more difficult. Cause I mean, with Onyx, you can just pick up and go, you know, and you don't, you just go, oh, here's a place over here. Let's go look at that. You know, it doesn't require like a lot of uh, like front end research. You know, you can just kind of pick up and go and, and very quickly jump from area to area, which, has worked out in our favor a couple times on uh, trips. Oh yeah, yeah. It's definitely taken the worry out of you know hunting new public land and stuff. Just being able to man, just you see a spot that looks good, you can just <laughs> take off and and head right there and and not worry about well, am I going to remember how to get back or or you know blood trailing a deer where you're just kind of wandering through the woods maybe after dark with flashlights and. uh you know, not, not paying as much attention sometimes as you should to landmarks and stuff. It just, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely, definitely been a, been a game changer. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll, I'll say one thing too about, uh, on X, like a, a tool that they have that 
has actually been really eye opening for me. And I, like I, I talk about this like fairly often, but like I, I think it, it is something that can really help people. And that is we talk to a lot of people on our, our podcast who are successful by finding overlooked spots. You know, they're they're just they're just hunting where other people aren't hunting. And, you know, sometimes that's way far back on a place, a couple miles deep. Sometimes it's just across a creek that no one wants to cross. And sometimes it's right next to a parking lot where everyone's walking past it. But the track feature on OnX kind of helped me figure out, you know, what I'm overlooking because I'm, you know, I, I like to think that I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm looking in all the spots where no one else is going. I'm being creative. You know, I'm, I'm thinking outside the box, but I'm like 90% of the time you're really not, you know, you're, you're you're listening to the same podcast that everybody else are listening to. You've read the same articles. Uh, and so everyone's kind of thinking similar. And, you know, sometimes you do get away from people, but a lot of times you don't. And so I started making it a point where every single time I go into the woods, whether I'm scouting or hunting, whatever, I'm I'm putting that track on. And that's helped me because over over time, like over this past deer season, for instance, like I joined a hunting club next to my house <clears throat> and I hunted out there all year and I just use that track feature every time. And now I go back and I look at all those tracks of where I hunted and where I scouted. And there's just like obvious gaps of places that I never went to. And I'm like, okay, well that's what I'm overlooking. You know, that like that, those are the places that, that I'm missing. So, um, that's going to help me hone in on stuff like overlook stuff. Um, whether it be a WMA that I've been hunting for like five or six years, because I've done that on a place like that too. Uh, or if it's like this brand new club, you know, that I'm trying to build some history with and figure out for the next two or three years as I'm hunting it. Um, using that track feature to figure out what you're overlooking is really valuable, especially if you're like struggling to actually find any deer, you know, like if you hunted a, a certain property eight times last year and you saw deer one time, you know, maybe, maybe go look at that map and, and take a look at the areas that you didn't go to and, and kind of start there, you know? So that, that's helped me a lot actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. I use that track pretty much every time I'm in the field and, uh, which will, which will bring me to a later topic. I want to pick your brain about, and that's, uh, organizing all that stuff because man, my on X app is a, an absolute mess when I pull, you know, you pull up, some of the WMAs that I hunt on a regular basis and you got like, I don't know, four, three, four years worth of dropped pins and tracks and everything else. But we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but kind of, kind of backing up, I guess, to say, you know, you're approaching a brand new property. Um, just, just start us out by talking about what are some of the different types of, of maps and resources um you're going to use for, for scouting that property and, and what, what do each of those kind of provide different from the other? Mm -hmm. So the, the first thing I'm going to do, if I'm looking at a new property, which this is great. Cause like, I, I just did this again with that hunting club. So like I mentioned to you before we got on here, my wife and I recently moved and I haven't been in a hunting club since I was like 15 or so. Like, you know, I, I was under, <laughs> Uh, my friend's dad's membership. They took me with them, but I haven't been in a hunt club in a long time, but this place is five minutes out my door. So I'm like, well, I'm going to join it because I'm nice. like right here. And so I joined it and kind of started from scratch. So the, 
the very first thing I like to do uh, is I like to look at multiple imagery sources. So what that's going to do for me is I'm going to, I'm going to see what kind of trees are there, like what, where are the hardwoods? So all the trees that are like gray, you know, on a wintertime image, you know, your oaks, hickories, sweet gum, like whatever, uh, versus your pines, uh, which are going to be green all winter. And and I just want to see what the property's made up of. Um, and so I'll look at Onyx, I'll look at Google maps, I'll look at Bing maps, uh, I'll pull up the county GIS site. So if you live in like Limestone County, you just type in, you know, Limestone County, Alabama GIS site. And a lot of counties have a GIS site that has their own imagery on it. And so it depends on the county. Like they not, not, not all of them have it, but a lot of counties do have that across the South. And it's the same in Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, you know, you name it. Uh, and probably up north too, you go to that and they fly their own imagery. And a lot of times that imagery is way better than anything else you're going to see. It's, it's better than uh, it's better than Google. It's better than any kind of like map box imagery out there. It's because they're they're flying it for like survey purposes. So that where Google might be like a nine inch resolution imagery, that county imagery might be like three inch if it's really good. Like Montgomery County, Alabama has ridiculously good uh, imagery. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just look at all of those, um, and I'm also gonna go to Google Earth Pro, which is on your desktop, where you can flip back through the years. So I'm gonna go look at the property, and I'm gonna look at the most recent picture, and then I'm just gonna go all the way back. So if those photos go all the way back to like '95, then I'm gonna flip all the way back to '95, and I'm gonna see how that property has changed over the years. So I want to see, Hey, when was this cut? Um, you know, how long has this forest been growing? You know, like, Oh, okay. This, this, uh, pine plantation was a a fresh cut over in 2005. Um, and if, if you have like, you know, some familiarity with your area and about how long it takes for stuff to grow, you know, if, if you see that, that, that was cut in 2005, then you should have a pretty good idea of what it should look like right now. So this is like pre boots on the ground scouting. Uh, you know, it, it'll just start giving you like a good makeup of what the area actually looks like habitat wise. Uh, so that, that's what I start with every time. And so I'm actually trying to identify areas that are diverse which means like where there's just multiple cover types. So you have an old field that meets a pine thicket with a small hardwood drainage that runs adjacent to it. So stuff like that, where you just have multiple different things all coming together. Uh, And then also I'm looking for thickets. So I'm trying to, using that imagery, I'm trying to determine where are the thick areas? Like what, what's going to hold the deer? Where are they going to be laying up during the daytime? Where the doe is going to hide from the bucks in the rut? Stuff like that. Um, and then after I kind of determine uh, what the habitat's like, then I look at terrain, uh, just again, trying to get a feel of the place. And same thing for the terrain, I'll look at multiple different maps. So uh, I'll look at um, like just a good old topo map of the area. And then I'll also look at LIDAR, which LIDAR, if people aren't familiar, the, the best way to describe LIDAR is it's, it's, it's like a, almost like a 3d scan of the earth's surface. I mean, it is very, very detailed. Like I'm sitting here looking out my window right now in my office and there's like a big drainage ditch outside, just like a, like a little storm drain ditch. 
Um, with LIDAR, with good LIDAR, you can see that ditch. So it's like shaded relief is, is another term that people use for like LIDAR imagery. Um, and, and that's another thing that you can get just from multiple different um, resources. Uh, you can really your best bet is just Googling it. Um, try to Google like places where you can find LIDAR. One of the better places that, that I found is, again, county GIS sites. So if, if you're lucky enough to have whatever county that you're hunting in have a designated GIS site, a lot of times they will have their own LIDAR. Uh, and again, kind of the same thing as, as I said before, like when they have their own LIDAR, it's going to be a lot better than anything else you're finding out there most of the time. Uh, so that, that's another thing that I look at, especially if um, hunting a more flat area. Uh, that LIDAR is especially useful because you're just not going to have any topo lines to go off of. Like you're not going to be hunting big terrain features. You're going to be more hunting around like drainages and ditches and, and whatnot and more, and more subtle things, you know, that don't, that aren't going to show up on a topo map. But even in hill country, that LIDAR is useful because you can see the old logging roads, you know, that are carved into the earth. Uh, you can see rocks and boulders and stuff like that. Um, and you can see like any washouts or drainages. So it, there's just a lot of different things that you get out of that LIDAR data. But, but that's kind of like my, my like new property workflow, for lack of a better term, is I'm looking at the habitat first, looking at the terrain second, and I'm using multiple resources for both of those to give me like the best picture of what I'm about to walk into. Yeah, I think I, think I first heard about LIDAR from, from you guys, and I remember – Man, the first time I, I checked it out, I was I was blown away because, like you said, you just you're able to pick up so many things that that you just don't see on a regular topo map. Um, you know, some of the like you like you mentioned some one of the one of my favorite places to to put trail cameras on public land are those drainage ditches that that kind of run up a ridge and where they where they finally kind of peter out as they as they get to you know up, up on the ridge a lot of times you know i know i've heard you guys talk about it as well you know that's you'll find those those deer going around kind of the head of that drainage mm -hmm. and uh you know you can't you typically you can't pick those out on a on a topo map there's just not enough elevation change there where they where they really show up in the contour lines but uh yeah that that lidar man they, it shows up like you said I, I i could see permanent fire breaks on some of the wmas that that i hunt on you know, you could pick up with that LIDAR and it was, uh, yeah, just, just a really cool, really cool feature for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And also this is kind of a, a interesting thing is depending, so like not to get like too technical on the map stuff, but <laughs> a lot of topo maps are, are made from an older data set. So, uh, the data set might be more coarse than you're looking for. So th that's why a lot of people like maybe maybe you've been looking at like a USGS topo map for like your whole life of of a certain area that you hunt. And then and then you find some really good LIDAR, you know, for that area and you go look at that LIDAR and it's just way different looking than that topo map makes it seem like it's just missing whole like saddles, like significant saddles will be like missing from that topo map. Like they just don't show up benches. Uh, just all kinds of features. And that's because a lot of times that LIDAR that you're looking at is a much, much finer data set. Uh, so like if you just want to break it down like as as like the quote unquote resolution, uh, like the spatial resolution of it, it's the difference between like a 
let's just say like a five meter resolution and like a half meter or a quarter meter resolution. So that would be like if you if you take if you take like a big giant square on the ground, it's like one pixel of that map. Uh, it's the difference between one pixel being a five meter square versus a quarter meter square. So obviously the quarter meter square, you're going to get a lot more detail and that's going to you know be able to pick up those slight drainages and little ditches and stuff. And that's why LIDAR is so valuable because it, it's picking up on stuff that uh, you just, you can't see on those other maps, you know, not, not until people start, you know, updating topo maps, which, which is happening. I mean, there's like Onyx, I think, I, I don't know if they're uploading the, or I don't know if they're updating their topo maps or not. I don't want to speak for them, but they're just, they're pouring like a ton of money into all kinds of different stuff when it comes to getting good data into their platform. So I'm sure they're going to be on the forefront of like whatever's coming out, but it's all moving very quickly right now because this technology is only getting more affordable and, and more available to people. Uh, so I'm excited to see where maps are going to be like within the next couple of years. Uh, I, I think that LIDAR is only going to get bigger. And I, I'm thinking that LIDAR in the future is going to be just like a staple, you know, for, for all like map scouting platforms uh, as it becomes more available. But one of the problems with LIDAR though, is that it, it is, I'm not going to say it's new, but it's just not something that people have been doing for a long time on a large scale. So there's, there's not like a good, fine, you know, kind of like the kind of LIDAR that we're talking about where you can see those ditches and stuff. There's not like a nationwide data set for that. So it's very patchy. You know, it's like this county paid for LIDAR of their county, this county, the one next door didn't, uh, or, or whatever, this state paid for it and that one didn't. So. There is, it's, there's not like a comprehensive nationwide layer yet, but I, I think that'll change eventually in the future. Um, I don't know when, but like I said, it's, it's getting cheaper for people to gather that kind of data and it's getting a lot more common and more people are seeing the value in it too. So uh, I, I think that it's going to become more of a, more of a uh, priority for companies and municipalities to get that kind of data. And then, you know, we're going to have access to it and it's only going to get better from here. Yeah. Now, when when you're looking at at the topo data and and lidar data, what specifically, I guess, are are you looking for? And you and you touched on you just briefly mentioned there about you know saddles and and benches, but uh, what kind of things are you looking for that that might you know point you towards an area to to put boots on the ground? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that depends on what I'm hunting. So this past year. We we did a kind of a mountain hunt here in Alabama. We went to a, a pretty mountainous part of the state, and uh, in that area, we were looking for something pretty different than what I'd look for in like central Alabama. So like in, in that area, it was very topo centric because because of the terrain, and like actually um, our the we have a video on our YouTube channel dropping on Tuesday of that hunt where it shows me like I I shoot a buck on that hunt. Uh, over a big community scrape that's in a in a thermal hub that's on a bench, you know, kind of on the side of this mountain. And it's like a very, is a really good example of like terrain and everything. And so I kind of highlighted that in the video. But the way it's set up was you basically just had this big ridge, big tall ridge that shoots up like 600 feet above the valley floor. And the valley floor had some private land in it. So basically the ridge is public, the valley floor is private. There's like some farms down there or something like, you know, like they have some like chickens and, and like 
uh, and like cattle or something down there. And um, there's open pasture land basically. And um, the deer were leaving the public land and going down onto that private land to feed at night and then coming back up and bedding on the, on the side of the mountain during the day. And on the bottom third of that ridge, there was a nice bench that ran around, just a nice flat spot, you know, where the, where the ridge went from really steep and then it flattened out and then it dropped back off the rest of the way to the bottom. And there was drainage just running down the side of the mountain that would run down through that bench. And it kind of created little hubs in that bench. And I found a big community scrape right there. And that's where I ended up shooting that buck on. So that was a, that was actually like a perfect example of the going through and looking at the terrain and the habitat and everything and how they kind of married up together, you know, like the habitat had it to where the deer were on the ridge during the day and in the bottom during the night. And then the terrain feature in the, was basically right in between them. And it's something that would kind of funnel those deer. So I was able to take advantage of that terrain feature. So like in that situation where it's more of like a big woods mountain setting, um, I'm looking for like a big giant, you know, landscape funnel like that, where there's just going to be like a lot of deer in the area that are going to go through that one, uh, feature, I guess. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like a really big bench too. It's a really big hub. So like you got to kind of zoom out the map and it's maybe a little bit bigger than what most people are looking for, which is one reason I think it's pretty good. Now that's a lot different though, than if I'm hunting, like say the, say the WMA that me and you hunted last year, Brian, um, that place for, for the LIDAR. So actually the, I, the buck I shot there, uh, I actually used LIDAR to find that deer too. Um, with that particular hunt, I was just, I was trying to figure out where a, where a buck might be bedding because it, it was early October and everything's kind of weird in early October. Like yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of a transition going on. It's kind of hard. Like I was wishing we could have done that hunt in early September, but, uh, but early October, man, it can be challenging in Georgia. Oh, and yeah. in, in that particular area, I wasn't really looking for like saddles or you know benches or anything per se because it's it's not that hilly out there you know i mean there's some gentle rolling hills but it's nothing crazy uh so in that area i was looking for more of actually like man-made features so like i was looking at, at the road system and how the road laid out um and basically how it is out there and this is going to be the same for a lot of wmas across the southeast is there's basically a road on every ridgetop so like the spine of every ridge has a road going down it, and that's kind of how the road system is like the the road runs right down the middle of the main ridge it goes right through all the saddles and everything all the all the big saddles on that place uh and then it the road forks and it goes down the sides of the finger ridges because it, this place is heavily logged and so it's timber country and you know they got to get the logging crews in there so there's roads just everywhere and uh, for that area is kind of the same thing. I started with habitat. I was trying to find where, um, bucks would be bedding that time of year where they could stay kind of cool because it was still really hot, but where they could also be, you know, pretty safe and hidden from people. And after a couple of days of frustration and, you know, not really getting on anything, I, I used the LIDAR and I basically found a, a drainage that was choked out with, uh, a uh, uh, cane, and I didn't know it was choked out from cane from the lidar, but I didn't know that till I got in there. But what attracted me to it from the lidar was there was a, a road system 
on the ridge above this drainage. And so if you just think of this drainage kind of going up, you know, and it's just your regular hardwood bottom, you got a ridge on each side. There was roads going down, like secondary roads going down both of those. So it was flanked by a road on both sides, um, which doesn't sound that great. But what people were doing is I think most people were driving down those roads and basically driving past where this buck was. Um, and so if you go up the valley to where those two roads meet, those two roads met basically all the way at like the head of that drainage. Um, and so there's like an intersection. So if you're driving that road, you come to a fork in the road and you go left or you go right and you go down like a mile either side. And uh, I was basically hunting right down from the Y in that road because no one was parking at the at that intersection and just walking straight down into the bottom right there. And so I, I came up uh, from the like the bottom away from that that intersection. So I was walking up the drainage towards the intersection and uh, ended up finding on the LIDAR where there was like a, a small, there was like a really steep hillside right there, like un, like a uncharacteristic uh, steep hillside for that area. So like I said, the area is pretty gentle and rolling, but no like very, very steep terrain. Well, there was just one one spot in this drainage where it was like pretty steep, you know, for the area. And it was the steepest stuff around. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to walk to that and kind of see what it looks like. And then I got in there and it was choked out with a with like river cane, which I really love. And I was like, okay, this is looking good. And I got up in there, found the buck sign. And then I actually jumped the buck out of his bed and he was bedded right there at the base of that really steep part of the hill. And uh, that was in the afternoon. And then I, I came back the next morning and shot a buck there. I don't know if it was the same one. I'd like to think it was, <laughs> but that does sound way cooler. But, um, but that's how I used LIDAR on that place. So for that place, you know, it, it was a lot less about finding a terrain feature per se and more about just finding an anomaly. But that anomaly was not visible on any kind of topo map that I was looking at. I mean, you could... You, you could kind of see it on a topo map if you were looking like really, really hard, but it just stuck out like a sore thumb on LIDAR, which is why, again, I, I really like LIDAR because uh, I probably would have missed it on a, on a regular topo map. Um, so like I said, it just it depends on where you're at, but that, that, those are kind of two examples of how I've used it. Yeah. Uh, before I move on, you, you touched on or you mentioned, you mentioned a thermal hub there. For those who might not be familiar with that, what what exactly is a, a thermal hub? Uh, a thermal hub is just an area where multiple drainages come together is kind of the easiest way to explain it. So like if you go look at a topo map and you find just like follow like a creek, you know, um, and, and you follow that creek and then you find where another creek runs into it or maybe two other creeks run into it. That, that would be a thermal hub where those things kind of meet. And it doesn't have to be a creek per se. It can be like a, a tiny little, you know, ephemeral stream that doesn't flow all year, you know. Um, and it's just where multiple of those drainages come together. And the the reason that deer like it, I think, first of all, is that they're really easy places to like go cross through. Like if you're trying to get from one ridge to another, uh, it's just kind of a natural place for you to kind of drop down and, and do that. Um, but also it's where the thermals kind of congregate. So back in, back when I was a kid, we called them bowls. Um, 
And I, like, I didn't hear the word thermal hub until I started doing podcasts and stuff. And then people started calling them thermal hubs. Um, but it's the same thing as like a bowl. So it's just where multiple creeks or, or ditches or drainages come together into one spot. And uh, it kind of looks like a crow's foot actually on a topo map. So some people will call them a crow's foot or we had one particular guest, uh, Josh Driver. He, uh, he called him, he, he liked to target what he called a high crow's foot. And that's just a thermal hub that's basically, I guess you could say, on the top third of like a ridge system. So it's up there where there's probably not actually water flowing down these drainages, but it's just like, you know, a, a little tiny, you know, drainage that's coming down. You know, maybe, maybe it's kind of rocky, but there's no water actually coming down it, or maybe there's just a trickle of water coming down it. But there's two or three of those that come together. And when you see it on a topo map, it looks like a crow's foot, you know, or a turkey foot or something like that, where those drainages come together. Um, and those are, I, I was, me and Jacob were talking about those actually not that long ago, because we were like, outside of like cutovers, power lines and food plots, what do you think most bucks get shot on in the southeast? And I was saying, I think bulls, because uh, that's, that's really one of the only things that, that a lot of people I grew up around, a lot of older gentlemen that I grew up around who are really successful deer hunters, that's one thing they targeted. They're like, well, I'm going to go down to that bowl. And, you know, they would just hunt it and hunt it and hunt it and hunt it during the rut and eventually, you know, kill a buck. And they had a really high success rate doing that. Uh, and they're just, they're great places for deer to travel to. A lot of times you'll find a big scrape down there, you know, because it gets so much deer traffic. Uh, so they're just really great. They're really, they're really, really good uh, terrain features to like pay attention to. And uh, we actually get questions all the time when we're talking about terrain features. People are like, well, what, what does that look like? And, you know, it's an audio show, so it's not the easiest thing to right. describe. So uh, <laughs> this, this summer, we're going to do like a deer terminology video series on our YouTube channel uh, where we're going we're gonna to do some like high quality videos that kind of show all these different things like in, in our, you know, Southern setting down here and kind of show people what they look like and, and how to find them on a map and everything. So, so we can have something to like point people back to, but, but really there's a lot of great resources out there already too. Like if, you know, people want to look up like how to find a thermal hub on a map, what does the thermal hub look like for deer hunting? You know, look up something like that. I'm sure you'll be able to find something to give you like a good visual and it's kind of like learning a new tree, you know, like you learn a new species of tree and then all of a sudden you start seeing that tree all over the place because now you know what it is. <laughs> that, that's kind of how that's kind of how this will be. You know, you go look at a thermal hub and be like, oh, that's what that is. And you'll you'll see them all over the place on the map because they're everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, based on on what you said there, you know, you're, you're looking at your aerial imagery. You're looking for, you know, those those transition zones between different habitat types you're looking for cover uh on your lidar and your topo maps you're look you're looking for the different terrain features i guess how does that all work together um before you head out to put boots on the ground i mean are you are you specifically looking for areas where at least uh, you know two or more of these 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 features overlap or in close proximity or or, you know, is one, do you, do you weight one heavier than the other as far as, you know, terrain versus uh, habitat features or how, how does it all come together, I guess, before you, or when you're deciding to where you're going to start with your, your boots on the ground scouting? Yeah, yeah man, it's different for every area that I hunt. And my very general rule of thumb is that 
if the terrain is steep enough where it where it basically forces movement, then I put terrain first. So it maybe if you're in a more mountainous area or if you're just in an area that has some like very steep stuff. I mean, there like I've been to some stuff in Georgia that's it's not mountainous, but it's like I guess erosion or something uh, has like made some like serious washouts and uh, and just some like very steep ditches and stuff. If it's something like that that literally forces movement, where like the deer have to walk through the saddle, or they're they're greatly encouraged to because it's just completely impractical to go a different way, then I'll look at terrain first, and that'll be my go-to. But for for most people out there, I don't think that terrain really necessarily has to come first because again like the the area that we hunted in georgia and then a lot of places that i hunt here in alabama i mean there's there's hills but they're not steep enough where they really like force any kind of movement so i i tend to look at habitat first in those specific areas and then once i find the habitat that is going to hold the kind of deer that i'm wanting or the numbers of deer that i'm wanting then I look for the terrain within that habitat that's going to give me an advantage with actually hunting those deer. Um, and that, and that also, by the way, on the terrain thing that also, if you're in a big woods setting, that kind of also factors it. So if you're hunting, you know, giant closed canopy hardwoods and that's all that there is for miles and miles around, uh, you know, then, then terrain is probably going to be like your best bet because there's just not that much diversity with the plants for you to take advantage of. Um, and then when it comes to looking for diversity, again, it's, it's site dependent. So kind of like if you're in that big woods setting, the, the mountain hunt that I had uh, that I mentioned last year, it's all closed canopy hardwoods. There's no like cutovers or anything like that there. It's, it's all hardwoods. What we were able to find, though, was where a patch of those hardwoods had died, either from a fire or a beetle kill off or something on that hillside. And it killed a bunch of trees and let sunlight get to the forest floor. And then it grew up thick right there on a steep slope. And uh, that, you know, that was the diversity that we found. You know, it, it wasn't like there was like four or five different edges coming together in one spot. It was just like there were some dead trees, you know, on this one hillside and the deer were using it. So it's like if you're in that situation, then that's all it takes. You know, two different habitat types coming together, like, boom, you're in business. Now, if you're in pine country where they're doing a lot of timber cutting and stuff, two edges coming together isn't, it's kind of underwhelming because there's edges everywhere. You know, that's, that's really nothing special. So maybe look for where there's three edges coming together or four or whatever, just however many you can fit to one area. Um, over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of luck in areas, uh, in areas that are very diverse, we've had a lot of luck with going to just, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, like a hub of diversity. Like say you have a, a creek, okay, and, and a nice hardwood bottom in that creek. And on the western side of the creek, you have a brand new clear cut. You know, it's that first year clear cut. It's got waist high sage grass in it, and it looks awesome. And then on the east side of that creek bottom, you have, um, some like five-year-old planted pines. So they're like thick. I mean, they're thick and in their prime. That's something that, that we would look for in timber country because you've got, you've got a hardwood bottom that's going to have oaks and acorns and stuff in it. You've got pines that I would consider in their prime, that five to seven-year-old range where they're just super thick underneath. You can't hunt them like at all. It's a great sanctuary for the deer. 
But then in immediate proximity to that, you have a nice open cutover that you can hunt that deer also love. And so now you've got all these ingredients in one place that that should make for some really good hunting. And it should be holding a lot of deer. Uh, and then once I found that, then I'm looking, I'm like, okay, what's the terrain feature here that I can use? Oh, there's a thermal hub in this hardwood bottom that separates these two things. Like, boom, I'm hunting there for sure. I mean, I just like, now that I just said that, I'm like, man, I need to find that on a map and try to hunt that this fall. Cause that sounds, <laughs> that sounds awesome. You know, like you got your super thick bedding on one side, you've got your more open cutover on the other side and a thermal hub right between it. Like, yes, sir. That's, that, that's kind of like my thought process with these things. Cause I'm just, I'm trying to stack stuff in my advantage. And a lot of times for me, it just, it comes down to habitat. Cause that's the kind of stuff that I normally am, am hunting in, but you know, like I would just tell people that it, it, it comes down to what your area is like. If you're in an area with a lot of diversity, then it's going to maybe require a little bit more. If you're in an area with very little diversity, then it doesn't take much. I mean, it could be, like I said, it could be a patch of dead trees where stuff got thick. It could be a patch of pine trees. Uh, we've actually, we found where in big open hardwood forests, you know, that are unbroken and not diverse at all. If you look at the map and you're looking at wintertime imagery, it'll just be gray. I mean, everything is gray. And then there'll be like one acre of pine trees just randomly, you know, growing on like a, like a ridge point or something like that. If you go to those pines, a lot of times you, you'll find buck sign there because it's just something different, like something out of the ordinary. So, you know, areas with less diversity, it could be something as simple as that could kind of attract deer to that spot and be like a focal point for them. Yeah. So just, <clears throat> yeah, just m- maximum diversity. And of course that, like you said, that's, that's going to vary obviously depending on location, you know, so mm-hmm. good deal. Um, getting back, I guess we, we've talked a lot about on X and, and the different features and, and you know, obviously you have your aerial imagery on there and, and your topo features. And uh, what else have you seen? Actually, we were talking before the show and <clears throat> I was telling you that I hadn't I, I use it a lot, but I really, I guess, haven't like dug into some of the new layers that have been out. I really hadn't looked, you know, I've just been using standard, you know, waypoints and and tracks and and that kind of stuff that I've used all along. But I, I got to digging the other day and, and saw this thing on there called Terrain X. H- have you have you used that? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I've used it a little bit. So what Terrain X looks like to me is it's uh it's kind of like a like a three D mapping type deal where you can go on there and there's there's a lot of data in it. And this kind of goes back to you know. Uh, digital elevation models and LIDAR and stuff like that. Like they're plugging in that kind of data and you can get a lot of information from it. So like just one of the things that I think people would find particularly useful, uh, like you listen to this podcast is you can go on there and you can select, uh, you can basically tell the map to highlight a certain slope aspect. So you can go on there and you can say, Hey, highlight all the south facing slopes and boom it highlight automatically highlights all the south facing slopes um which you know for like bedding purposes and whatnot and and just sunlight exposure like that's a really useful tool for whitetail guys uh or or north facing slopes you know like actually down here right now uh in alabama this summer we're using north facing slopes to 
target our trail cameras. So like we're finding where bucks hang out on those north facing slopes to just kind of stay cool during the summertime. So we're going to try to use that for a little bit of buck inventory this coming year um, over the summer and see if we can't find like some some areas, some focal points on some north facing slopes where maybe we'll get some bachelor groups coming through. Uh, but also they have a, a view shed analysis, which is a, a fancy way of saying, what can I see from this spot? And that's pretty cool, especially if you're planning on any kind of Western hunt or any kind of hunt where you're planning on being able to see from a while uh, or see for a long ways. You can drop a point on the map and it highlights all the stuff that you can see from that point and, and darkens out whatever you won't be able to see from that point. So like if you're looking for a glassing knob for it, for an elk hunt that you got coming up this September, you can drop a point on that, uh, on that, you know, glassing knob that you're looking at and it'll highlight everything you should be able to see from that point from a terrain's perspective. Now, obviously like trees and stuff can get in the way and I don't think it accounts for that, but yeah, you can drop a point and it'll show you everything from a terrain. So it's like, okay, if I'm sitting here, I, I can barely kind of see up into that drainage, but if I move to this glassing knob, 150 yards to the east, then I can see right up, you know, I can see around that corner like I need to. So it's a really powerful tool for stuff like that. And and I've just barely started using it, but I'm excited to kind of dive into it a little bit more because that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about that's exciting because you've got companies like Onyx, which is like a, a really gigantic company. I mean, they have a, a lot of money, you know, to throw behind whatever initiatives they got going on. And, uh, it, it's exciting to see what like kind of what they're innovating with and what they're going to bring into like scouting platforms. Uh, Cause you know, they're, I think they're kind of trendsetters for, for the space. So, you know, it's, it's exciting to see what they're bringing in, whether it be the terrain X stuff or the, the layer that shows you, you know, which trees are Oaks, that raster layer we talked about earlier. There's just a bunch of stuff on there that they're bringing on that, that I'm pretty excited about. So I'd, I'd encourage people to go cruise around that thing and check it out. Um, I think the Terrain X is only available on desktop. It's not available on your phone. So you just go and, you know, go to Onyx on, on your laptop and, uh, and check it out there. Um, and there's actually a bunch of features on there that aren't on the phone. Like I actually realized one the other day, they have uh, recent imagery. So you can actually go flip through different Im imagery layers on the Onyx like desktop application and, uh, see more recent imagery so, so for us southerners it's really good for finding new cutovers and, and new you know thinned pines or, or whatever like changes in timber is really good for being able to, able to see that but that's another thing that you can only see it on a computer you can't do it on your phone yeah yeah and another another layer that uh is on there for for us for us southern hunters is a uh, a southern rut heat map so for for dealing with our crazy you know, rut peak rut timing scattered all across the calendar down here. Uh, they got they got that rut heat map. Um, man, they had you know a drought layer that you could drop on there, uh, precipitation radar, and of course they they worked with with us here at the NDA to to develop the CWD counties and zones, which you know is important if if you're going to an area where CWD is has been found. It's that's good to know. A lot of laws surrounding you know, what you can do with your deer after you shoot it. So you got to, you got to know if you're hunting in or hunting through a, a CWD area. So yeah, just man, a ton of resources within, within the app for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, yeah, man, it's a great tool. I mean, uh, I use it like almost every day 
Um, we're, we're using it right now. Hopefully, hopefully we're going to Kansas this year. So I've been, I've been cruising around on X trying to figure out what we're going to do if we're lucky enough to get a, our Kansas tags this year. So we'll see. Yeah. And, and I do before we, before we leave on X here and kind of get into the, the Southern Outdoorsman podcast, I, I want to pick your brain because maybe, maybe you've got a better system than I do, but I, I'm curious how you manage all your, your waypoints and stuff. If you have a, a system for that, because man, I've just, I, I got to get mine under reins. Um, I got points scattered everywhere, all different colors and, you know, icons and, and everything else. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's getting, getting a little out of hand. So in, any tips on that end? Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I've actually struggled with this exact same thing. Cause I don't, man, I don't even know how many points I had, but like, it was like glitching up my app for a minute there. <laughs> I mean, there was a, there was a lot of points on the map, especially like you said earlier, those places you've been hunting for five or six years and dropping pins on for five or six years. I mean, man, <laughs> it adds up over time. Same thing with the tracks too. Like I was saying, I, I do a track every time I go in the woods. I mean, it looks like someone spilled like blue spaghetti all over it with those little black packs. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're just all over the place. Um, what? So what I've started doing, and I really, 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 really wish I had done this like years ago, was uh, when I drop a pin on something now, I, I I view that pin as like a really valuable data point. So it's like, okay, I'm already in here. Um, I'm looking at something. Uh, I need to record everything that I think I need to know about this so I don't forget. I don't have to come back because I used to be able to just remember all of it, but I can't do that anymore. Um, no. Like, I just can't, you know, I got to take notes. So, like, I'll, I'll drop pins, like scouting pins. So, I'll drop a pin on, you know, a piece of public I'm going to go to or or my hunting club, and it'll just be like a point of interest. So, I'll make it like purple or something because it's just like a weird color I don't use for anything else. So I got, I'll drop like five pins and I'm like, okay, these are what I need to hit while I'm out here. And I'm going to try to hit all these pins and then just kind of like, you know, float around and look at a bunch of stuff in between them. Uh, as I, as I go to those pins when I'm in the field, I delete them. So as like I go to that pin and I'm like, okay, here's this, uh, here's this bluff gap I was trying to look at. I, I'll delete that pin. And if there's something there that I need to pin, when I drop a pin on it, I will, Jacob makes fun of me, dude. I'll write a small book in the notes section because <laughs> you can, you can like take notes on your Onyx pins now and you can do a picture. So if I find a big community scrape or something that I want to pin, I'll drop a pin on it. I'll usually make it like white or something. Uh, like that's the color I used for like stuff that I've like found like in the, in the woods, like confirmed on the ground. So I'll do like a white scrape pin. I'll take a picture of the scrape and save it to that pin. And then in the notes, I'll be like large community scrape, uh, X number looking branches sets up good for this. Um, uh, scraggly trees in the area probably can't use a climber here. Uh, make sure you bring the saddle, uh, sets up decent for a bow hunt. Just like anything that I think I would want to know come like October when I'm actually going to go hunt that I'll, I'll drop in there. And so uh, I try to, I try to do that and I try to just drop less pins when I'm out there. Cause I, there was a time where I was like, Oh, I'm going to drop a pin on every rub I find and I'm going to find like the travel corridors and stuff. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to have all the pins on all the different rubs and I'm going to like be able to go home and look at it on the map and it'll all make sense. 
well, that, that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like dozens of pins on a spot and it just makes no sense at all. Like there's no rhyme or reason. So uh, I honestly, for me, I dude, I just, I really try to be a lot more deliberate about what I'm actually dropping a pin on. And I'm not just dropping a pin just kind of to drop a pin. Like if there's just some random little basketball size scrape on a logging road, like I'm not just dropping a pin on it. You know, if I, if I'm dropping a pin on something, it's something that's relevant for me actually hunting in the area. And I'm putting as much information on that pin as I, as I can possibly think of so that if I'm going back to this area three years from now, I can go and click on that pin and I'm like, boom, got it. I I remember exactly where I was. I, I got this information here. So that's, that's actually, I've been doing that for probably three years now and it's made a huge difference for me. Um, I'm not going to say it's like led to me, you know, killing a buck that I wouldn't have killed otherwise, but I mean, it might have because there's certain details in those pins that, you know, I, I captured that information when I was in there three or four years ago and there's no reason for me to like lose that information. So might as well take the extra two minutes to, you know, type out everything that I need to know about that spot so I can refer back to it years later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to clean mine up. Cause I'm, I, I'm exactly doing exactly like you were describing there. I've got pins for just, you know, here's a white oak tree. Here's a, here's a red oak tree. Here, here's a scrape. Here's a rub, you know, just all anything I find. I was, I was dropping pins on there for a long time, but yeah. So now I can open up my on X and you know, you can't even see the WMA for all the pins when you're, when you're zoomed out. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, so, that's yeah. tough, man. Cause I've done the same thing with, with oak trees specifically. So like, like I said, I, I try to, I try to do less on the, almost use it as like a journal type thing. Uh, like I've found that to just be actually like in application more useful than just dropping a lot of pins. Cause, cause I was doing the same thing. I would drop pins. Like I ran into this several times. I'd, I'd find, I would walk all day and in some of the areas I hunt, it, it would be like a lot of like one kind of oak tree, but not a lot of just good old American white oaks. And I would run across an American white oak and I'd be like, Oh heck yeah. Like this is going to be great. There'd be buck sign under it from the year before. And I'd just drop a pin on it and I would just say like white oaks or something like that. And then when I would go back to hunt it the next year, I'd go look at that pin and I'd be like, okay. Um, so there's a white oak here, but I don't really remember what the trees around it were like, like, can I bring my climber or do I need to use a saddle? Uh, how does it set up? Like, is there a good cover there? Like, what do I, it was just missing a lot of information. So like I said, now I'm, I'm trying to more like use the pins to like actually take notes on stuff, uh, and, and hit some high points that I need to remember. So it's easier for me to refer back to. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about what what you have going on with the the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Because um, as you mentioned there earlier, you're what four hundred and eighty or so episodes in, and uh, you you and Jacob have got to interview just a man a tremendous amount of of extremely successful deer hunters. And so I, I'm curious with you know with that much uh, getting to talk to that many different hunters if you've noticed any common threads, I guess that, that you've picked up from those interviews that, uh, you know, have, have helped these guys be more successful deer hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the most prominent, and this one's like 
sounds pretty obvious, but it's just time in the woods. Like a lot of the really, really successful people that we talk to that they, they really spend time in the woods. Um, and that, that, that does not even necessarily mean scouting either. Like some of these guys, they do, they do boots on the ground scouting in season. Like they don't do summer scouting. They don't do like a lot of postseason. They just straight up go out and hunt. Uh, but, uh, but then other guys, they spend a ton of time in the summer or in the postseason scouting and the boots on the ground in season scouting. But the common thread between all of them is when it comes time to hunt, like they're getting after it. Um, and that sounds simple, but, you know, I'd encourage people to think about, you know, that that morning that that, it, you know, it's kind of like the early part of the rut. It's starting to get good, but it but it's like raining outside. You know, it's just like a like a nice steady rain at four o'clock in the morning and you wake up and you're like, eh, I'm just going to I'm going to you look at the weather and you're like, oh, it should break about 7 a.m. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to stay in bed. I'm going to cuddle up with my wife and I'm going to be warm for a little while longer. And and then you wake up at 7 a.m. and you're getting out there late. A lot of those guys that we talk to who are killing the you know upper echelon bucks, they don't do that, man. Their their butts getting out there and getting rained on. You know, and they're and they're just sucking it up basically. Uh, there's a lot of guys like that. Also, they're all very. Th- this is pretty much every single one of them that we talk to. And th- you know, we talk to guys from Florida and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Alabama and Georgia and Kentucky and Arkansas. Just every whitetail situation you could possibly think of. But the I would say the only thing that every single person that we have in common uh, is is uh, they're 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 disciplined and they're confident in their approach. So basically, what that means is they figured out what works for them, and and they they execute it like they like they know that they're going to actually kill a deer. You know, um, they're they're not they're not wishy washy about like what spot they're picking, like, Oh, like, I think this might be a decent spot or or whatever. Uh, I think they might come through here. They're like, no, based on what I know there, a deer should come through here today. Like I'm going in here to kill a deer. And it's that confidence, uh, that, that I think is a much bigger factor than a lot of people realize, because if you're confident in your spot and you're confident in your setup and you're confident in your judgment, then you're going to execute at a high level. So when you're walking in, you're going to be quiet you're going to you're going to be paying attention to your wind and making sure that the wind isn't doing what you don't want it to do and if it is doing something that you don't want it to do you're going to back out and call an audible and do what you got to do to you know get in there clean and so that like a lot of the really successful guys that we talk to that's kind of how it is for them they they have a lot of confidence in their method and because they're confident about it they're disciplined about it too uh we actually the by the time, actually, this episode dropped today as we're recording this. We we recorded with a fellow named uh, Alan Summerford here in Alabama, and this guy has a trophy room that, if he lived in Iowa, would be an impressive trophy room. But there, these are all Alabama deer. You know, the smallest euro mount he has is the buck he shot when he was in Iowa when he went to Iowa one time. I mean, dude, he has got unbelievable bucks from Alabama. Drop time bucks galore, dude. I mean, he's got like five drop time bucks in his house. It's ridiculous. And he has this one buck that is just this wild looking buck, like just antlers going all over the place. Huge deer. And he was telling the story about that deer. 
And he was like, yeah, I was in the spot where I knew I needed to kill him. And I saw him at 80 yards and he was like paralleling me. So he was walking in front. I knew I wasn't going to get a shot, but he was walking towards my scent stream and he was just kind of working over that way. And so he's got eyes on the deer and he's like, this deer's about to bust me. So he like literally just drops everything, crawls down out of his tree and gets out of there as fast as he can because he doesn't want to bust that deer because in his uh, specific situation, he had it set up where like these deer are very comfortable in this area. So he backed out and he got out of there and like he didn't try to grunt at the deer or anything like that. He didn't try to you know do any kind of calling. And he ended up shooting that buck in the same spot one week later. And I was like, dude, like what gives you the confidence to do that? I mean, that's very impressive. I would have been grunting up a storm at that buck. You know, if I'd seen that deer and, you know, he's walking, I would have been like, oh my gosh, this is my only chance. This is like a once in a lifetime deer. I'd be freaking out. But he's so confident in his setup. He's so confident in his tactic that He's like, yeah, I'll get down out of this tree and I'll come back here and I'll get him next week. And he did exactly <laughs> that, you know, and he's done that multiple times. Um, so I just I bring up his story just as an example. Like, again, a lot of these guys, they're confident in their tactics and and they don't really deviate from it. And and that's how Michael Perry is, too. You know, like when he shot the state record muzzleloader buck here in Alabama a couple of years ago, he was getting that deer on camera for a couple of years. And he had it on camera in a specific area in a specific set of days. So he was looking at an annual pattern where he's like, these couple days in October, November, whenever it was, this is when he comes cruising through here looking for does. And and this only time he gets them on camera. So those few days that he was there, Michael was in the woods after him. You know, he 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 was he was walking in, he was crossing his T's and dotting his I's. He wasn't taking shortcuts and uh and he was executing his plan, you know. And, and that led to his success. So there's just, there, there's, there's a lot. I mean, we, I could go on and on about that, but I mean, it just comes down to having confidence in what you're doing. And there's, there's no way to get that without experience and going out there and just trying it and failing it. So, you know, if there's, if there's maybe a newer guy listening to this, like, man, th- there's just no way around it. Like you got to go out there and you got to figure it out on your own and, and take what you hear on podcasts like this and go apply it out there and try it out. But ultimately you're going to have to figure out your own tactics and figure out which of these tactics work for you and kind of mold them into your own style. And then over time, your confidence will grow as you, as you execute that style and and you try it over and over again and you hone it and you figure out what works for you. And and that's how you create long-term success like those guys have. Yeah, that that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as far as the confidence leading to you know that person to maybe hunt more intensely or pay more attention or or be more cautious on the walk in um because that it makes me wonder if uh you know it's not that same thing happening when you know there there's a lot of hunters that that have these ideas and and in their head about you know the best time to hunt is you know right after a cold front or or a certain moon phase or whatever and and it's stuff that a lot of times you know, the deer research just hasn't shown to be true, mm-hmm. but yet, <clears throat> but yet that person's having success, you know, you're not going to tell them to change their tactics. And I wonder if that's not a big part of it is just, you know, they're going in there thinking this is the best day to be in the woods. So they're going to do just what you said there and and be more confident, hunt more intensely, pay more attention. And, uh, 
I wonder if that's ultimately what's leading to them being more successful during those times. Oh, absolutely. We we have some guys that uh, hunt near us. They actually hunt the same WMA that, that I've been hunting for years. And I've done okay out there, but they've killed some awesome bucks out there. And uh, one of their things that they were talking about was on a, on a rainy day, kind of like what I was describing before. They're like, dude, when it's raining, I'm getting in the woods and I'm getting on the backside of these cutovers where I know people are going to park and hunt, where uh, they're going to be walking in at seven, eight o'clock when that rain quits. And he's already in a tree, you know, way back in there. And he's like, when they, when they, when those bucks in that cutover hear those truck doors slam and they hear people starting to walk in, I mean, they know that people are there, you know, when they hear that they're going to start coming down, you know, out of these little terrain funnels and he hunts that and he's killed a couple really nice deer doing that exact tactic. And I was thinking about that. And that's something that I've thought about doing too, that I'm like, Oh, I bet that would work. And I've tried that in the past, but my problem is I'm not confident in that. I've never like had it work. I just one day thought of it and I'm like, well, I wonder if that would work. And then, so I go try to do it and I wake up and it's raining and it's cold. I'm like, God, it's going to suck. You know, like I'm not looking forward to it. And, and I, and I'm, I don't execute on it like I should, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm crashing through the woods. I'm being loud. I'm, um, my headlamp is just going all over the place. I'm shining everything with it on the bright setting. I don't know what tree I want to get in because I haven't been in there before. And I'm just kind of like doing this, you know, just randomly. And, and so I'm like, eh, you know, I, I just don't execute at a high level, you know, like he does. Like when he goes in there, he's like, I'm killing a buck today. Like the, it, everything is perfect. This is exactly how I want it. And he's waking up earlier. He's he's getting in quieter. He's he's being more stealthy when he's climbing the tree and shining his flashlight around and stuff. Um, and he's crossing his T's and dotting his eyes. And and I think that is a way bigger factor than people realize is is just you know like execute stuff like you're supposed to and, and don't take shortcuts and and just try to do everything right um, and, and don't cut any corners and and I think it'll work out for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, I guess on the flip side of that, have you, uh, and I, I know you have, but have you, have you interviewed any guys who uh, maybe take a uh, completely outside the box method that, that has uh, piqued your interest? Yeah, there's definitely been a couple. Um, one of, uh, one of the guys who has like a, like just really interesting thoughts on stuff is uh, Bill Vale um from pressured deer pros so he he lives up in michigan and he's i mean he's had a lot of success up there and this is like one of the more interesting thing like i've never heard anybody talk about this before but this is like way outside the box he talks about hunting i, I think he called it like a light trap or a light transition or something like that and he's basically looking for spots where depending on like the the canopy and the vegetation it's either like darker or lighter than the surrounding woods so for instance uh like if a buck is bedding and hopefully i get this right like if if a buck is bedding like in a marsh or something and he's he's using like a like this hardwood ditch to like get to an agricultural field so he's like leaving the marsh and then he's like walking down this ditch to get towards an ag field but that ditch is like very heavily forested and it's got a thick canopy that ditch is going to get dark earlier than the surrounding woods. And so he likes to hunt that kind of stuff because he thinks those bucks like want to be in the, the really, really dark stuff. 
And I think he even said to a certain extent, he wonders if it like kind of fools the deer into like a false sense of security where like, like the visible light is like darker in those spots. Like we've all been in the woods where you're in like real thick canopy and it gets like really dark, really fast. And then you pop out in like a food plot and, and you can still see. Okay. You're like, Oh, it's not mm, that dark. No. He wonders if it's the same for the deer and it, it's getting those bucks to get up on their feet a little bit earlier. Uh, so that was, that was like, I've never heard anybody talk about that. Uh, but actually after we did that, podcast interview with him and aired it we actually had some people write in being like yeah i've done that like i've heard of that before or or some people saying it's worked for them so that that was one that was interesting and then another guy that we interviewed in arkansas he was i've heard people of like hunting uh flooded timber like hunting the edge of flooded timber um where like deer basically working that water line but this guy gets out like 50 yards into the water like knee deep hip deep water and climbs a tree out there facing the uh facing the land and he he's killing bucks that are cruising in the water so the buck is walking in the water 40 yards off the shore in that flooded timber and that's like his little cruising corridor so he's like downwind of it you know in the water and so he's hunting that and he's he killed like a 170 inch buck last year doing that in arkansas i mean you know, it takes all kinds, man. Like there's, there's a lot of different ways to kill a deer, especially the big bucks. Like a lot of times it, uh, it, re- sometimes it requires like that kind of off the wall thinking to get it done. And and those guys have a lot of success, you know, kind of like how, uh, how, how the guy who like goes and drops off his 12 year old at like the crappiest stand on the hunting club ends up killing like a giant buck on his first time. <laughs> Like, because it's just something off the wall, like people never go to that spot. And then, you know, someone puts like an 11 year old there and they shoot, you know, the biggest buck on the property. You, you, you do something a little outside of the box and you catch those bucks off guard. Oh, yeah. 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 And that, oh, heck, that's what makes these hunting podcasts so interesting is you got you got so many different guys out there that are, you know, super successful deer hunters and. And in most cases, you know, no two of them are are doing the exact same thing. You know, everybody's got their own style and technique and way of doing things, but yet they're all managing to to find success. So that's mm-hmm. what's that's what's so cool about it. I guess you know there wouldn't be wouldn't be a whole lot of podcasts out there if if everybody was just killing them the exact same way. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, good deal, well, Andrew. For those that uh you know, want to check out what you're doing as well as what's going on with the, the Southern outdoorsman. Uh, what's, what's the best places for them to do that? Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, just the Southern outdoorsman. Um, we're also on, on YouTube, uh, which we, we spent a lot of, of time and, and money trying to figure out the video thing because we're, we're trying to do, we're trying to make something real special with the videos. Uh, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of really great hunting channels on YouTube. So we're just trying to look to be a little bit different. So we've, we've really slow rolled our video stuff and we're trying to find exactly what we want to do with it. But we got a lot of stuff coming out over this summer. Uh, we've got a couple hunts from last year that we, that we filmed. I mean, we've rented a bunch of like nice camera equipment and everything. And I think people are going to be impressed with it. So, uh, you can go watch our YouTube channel for that, but there's already a lot of like map scouting stuff on our YouTube channel and a lot of older hunts on there that people can go watch. And then of course the podcast is available anywhere that podcasts are found. Uh, we do a, an interview every Monday. So every single Monday you're going to get an interview with some kind of, you know, local deer guy. Um, 
I always tell people that, you know, you, you go to, you go to like some small town gas station, you know, that's got like a little bragging board where people pin up their pictures of their bucks and everything. And there's like always that one guy on the board who's just got a bunch of bucks. He's like the guy in that area, you know, he's like the local legend who just get like, everyone's like, Oh, that guy could kill a buck in a Walmart parking lot. Like that's the guy who we try to interview every week. Uh, so we, we seek out people who are getting it done on public ground, leases, hunting clubs, like the same kind of stuff that we all hunt and, uh, that, and keep it really relatable. So you get one of those every Monday and then every Thursday we drop an episode that's kind of like the color commentary, uh, where it's usually just me and Jacob or maybe me and Jacob and another friend of ours. And, and we'll kind of talk about Monday's episode and actually like applying it. And we're like, well, I thought this about that, or, or that relates back to what this other guest said. And we kind of try to tie it all together. And, uh, then also, you know, we just kind of give updates on our hunts and everything and kind of our thoughts on stuff. So people can follow along with that. So two episodes a week, anywhere podcasts are found. And then we're going to have a lot of uh, videos coming out on YouTube this summer as well. Good deal. Yeah, we'll be sure to link to the to the YouTube channel and, and your uh, podcast as well in the show notes. And uh, yeah, appreciate your time, Andrew. I, I enjoyed it as always. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to share another deer camp down the road here somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, Brian. And definitely maybe maybe sometime this fall or next fall, we can get together for another deer camp, man. That was fun last year. Absolutely. That'd be great, man. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Andrew Maxwell. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and, uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.